Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communia Sanctorum is titled Crazy Stuff because, well, you'll see as we get into it. A short while back, we took a look at the iconoclast controversy that took place in the Eastern Greek Orthodox Church during the 8th and 9th centuries. While we understand the basic point of controversy between the icon smashers, called iconoclasts, and the icon supporters, the iconoduls, the theology the iconoduls use to support the ongoing use of icons is somewhat complex. The iconoclasts considered that the veneration of religious images was simple idolatry. The iconoduls developed a theology that not only allowed, it encouraged the use of icons while avoiding the charge of idolatry. They said that such images were to be respected, venerated even, but not worshipped. Though for all practical purposes, in the minds of most worshippers, there was no real difference between veneration and the adoration of worship. The acceptance of icons as intrinsic to worship marked the entrance of a decidedly mystical slant that entered the Orthodox Church at this time and has remained ever since. All of this was seen in the career of an author now known as Pseudo-Dionysus the Areopagite. He's called Pseudo-Dionysus because while we know his writings were produced in the early 6th century in Syria, they claim to have been written by the 1st century Dionysus that's mentioned in Acts chapter 17, who came to faith when Paul preached on Mars Hill in Athens. Pseudo-Dionysus' most famous works are titled The Divine Names, Mystical Theology, and The Celestial Hierarchy. The Monophysite Christians of Alexandria were the first to draw inspiration from his work, supposing them to be genuine works of one of the Apostle Paul's disciples. The Byzantines followed suit and incorporated some of his ideas. Then, in 649, when Pope Gregory I and the Lateran Council accepted them as dating to the first century, they became more widely looked to as informing Christian theology. Pseudo-Dionysius' writings merged Christianity with Neoplatonism. He saw the universe as divided into an hierarchy of spirits and believed that the church ought to be organized in a similar way as this spiritual hierarchy. Where Pseudo-Dionysius deviated from the Neoplatonists was in his rejection of the idea that the goal of each human individual was to lose their individuality by reuniting with the Creator. He went 180 degrees the other way and said that it was the individual's goal to grow through mystical moments of revelation so that the person emerged into a divine state, more godlike than human. Pseudo-Dionysius taught that these mystical moments were bursts of revelation that brought enlightenment and advanced the soul's journey to near deity. But they weren't moments of revelation into divine knowledge so much as they were a stripping away of it. While early cults like the Docetists and Gnostics had made the acquisition of secret knowledge that imparted enlightenment the hallmark of their creed, Pseudo-Dionysus said that knowledge stood in the way of enlightenment. The mind was a barrier to spiritual advancement, not a tool to attain it. He claimed that the path to salvation, which he cast as spiritual fulfillment, proceeded through three stages, purification, illumination, and union. First, the seeker needed to strip him or herself of all earthly and fleshly entanglements. 
Then, by extreme forms of meditation, in which the goal was to wipe the mind clean, the special moment would arrive when the person would achieve illumination and realize their union with the divine. If this sounds a bit like Gnosticism and the esoteric offerings of Eastern religion, that's because they are similar. This synthesis of Christianity and Neoplatonist concepts had a huge impact on Byzantine theologies of mysticism and liturgy, on Western mystics, scholastics, and Renaissance thinkers. Pseudo-Dionysus' writings were translated from Greek into Latin about 850. They were rejected as inconsistent with the Bible by the Protestant reformers and then exposed as 6th century forgeries when scholars dug into their origin. But their emphasis on the mystical had already done its damage in the Eastern Church, which continued to hold on to many of Pseudo-Dionysus' ideas. Even to this day, salvation in the Greek Orthodox Church means something rather different than it does in the Western Church, where it's conceived as redemption from sin and reconciliation to God. In the Eastern Church, salvation is regarded as a return to a process of spiritual transformation that's enhanced by the Church, its priesthood, icons, and rituals, to a destiny that produces a being that is much more than human, though not quite attaining to deity. The Eastern idea is that the redeemed won't be God, but will certainly be God-like. Now, this is an oversimplification, but may help make the crucial distinction between the ways of the Western and Eastern churches in their understanding of salvation. The West sees the work of Christ primarily as salvation from sin, while the East understands it as salvation to glory. Again, that's maybe a gross reduction of the complex soteriology of the Eastern and Western theological traditions, but it's pretty accurate nonetheless. It's all in where the emphasis is placed. The Bible does say that Adam and Eve were created in God's image, and we know that Christ came to restore what they lost in the fall. Certainly, the redeemed in glory will appear as glorious creatures that dwarf the shades that humans are now. We are, as one musical artist sang, like ghosts on the earth, compared to the glory that was once Adam's and will be ours yet again. But in Greek Orthodox theology, Salvation seems to be not just a restoration of what was lost so much as a promotion into something else, something new, something even more glorious than the first man and woman enjoyed. Again, something above human, if not quite divine. And the emphasis on the mystical in the Eastern Church is all about how to make that leap, that spiritual form of evolutionary advance. In 650, as Pseudo-Dionysus' views were being heavily imbibed in the East, a church leader named Constantine, obviously not the emperor of the 4th century, resurrected some of the errors of the Gnostics. Constantine and his followers rejected the formalism of the Byzantine state church, claiming a desire to return to the simplicity of the early church. And we might respond, wait, in 650 they wanted to return to the dynamism of the early church? Isn't that the early church? That was 1,400 years ago. Constantine based his beliefs on the Gospels and letters of Paul alone. He claimed that an evil deity inspired the rest of the New Testament and all of the Old. In a reprise of Gnosticism, he claimed this evil deity was the creator and god of this world. The true god of heaven was opposed to the physical universe. That material world was unalterably evil. 
in order to save people's spirits from the wickedness of the physical world, the true God sent an angel who appeared as a man named Jesus. A little history taught church leaders how to shut down Constantine's re-emergent Gnosticism. All they had to do was to go back and read the early church's struggle with the Gnostics and how all these ideas were old hat with no basis in scripture. While a few church leaders did just that and waged an apologetic battle with Constantine's followers, the state church persecuted and at times executed them. Constantine changed his name to Silas, one of the Apostle Paul's associates. After this, Constantine Silas was stoned to death, and the next leader of the sect took the name Titus, another Paul's assistant. When he was burned to death, a third leader took the name Timothy. The next adopted the name Tychicus. All this led to the sect being called the Paulicians, or Paulicans, depending on how you want to pronounce it. During the iconoclast controversy of the 8th century, the persecution of the Paulicians eased a bit. One of the emperors may have even been a Paulician, but in the 9th century, the Empress Theodora ordered the Paulicians eradicated. Tens of thousands were killed, mostly in Armenia. In reaction, the Paulicians formed armies which proved quite capable in battle. So, unable to conquer them outright, the Byzantines offered them independence if they'd move to the troubled border with the Slavs and Bulgars, giving the empire grief. The Paulicians ended up having a major religious impact on the Bulgars. These Bulgar Paulicians became known as the Bogomils, named after their first leader. In the mid-10th century, he taught that the firstborn son of God was Satan, and because of Satan's pride, he was expelled from heaven. God then made a new heaven and earth in which he placed Adam and Eve. Satan then had sex with Eve, which union produced Cain, the source of all evil among humans. Moses and John the Baptist, according to the Bogomils, were both servants of Satan. But God sent the Logos, his second son, Jesus, to save humanity from the control of Satan. Although Satan killed Jesus, his spiritual body was resurrected and returned to the right hand of God. Satan was in this way defeated, or so said the Bogomillions. Now, some of our listeners may find all of this similar to another religious group headquartered today in a certain state in the United States that has great skiing during the winter and a capital located next to a large, salty inland sea. Turns out Solomon was right. There really isn't anything new under the sun. The Bogomils adopted a rigidly ascetic lifestyle. They despised marriage, although they permitted it in the case of less than perfect believers. They condemned the eating of meat and the consumption of wine. They rejected baptism and communion as satanic rituals since they used material things. Bogomilism flourished in Bulgaria while it was an independent country in the 10th century. Then again in the 13th, Bogomilian ideas spread to Western Europe where they influenced the Cathars and the Albigensians. When the Turks destroyed the Bulgarian Empire in 1393, the Bogomils virtually disappeared. The Paulicians continued in minor enclaves in Armenia all the way into the 19th century. It's possible that in some tiny corner of a rural community, Paulicianism continues to find adherents. And now you see why I chose to title this episode, Crazy Stuff. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.